than what we're going to read this morning. How about that? First uh, Peter 3, 1 through 7 is going to be our text to study this morning. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the bringing of hair and putting on of gold and jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy and this is how holy the um, sorry this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, with live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, it is good to be back with you this morning. Um, I have really missed being here opening the word each week and Sunday after Sunday with you. It's one of the joys I get and privileges I feel like the Lord has given me is to just to, to be your pastor and thank you for the six weeks of time to rest and reflect and to restore in some areas and work on some new rhythms and uh, some of those rhythms are will be bore out this fall. I'm excited about that, but um, but yeah, we're here and uh, what a text we get this morning, huh? Uh, a, te- a very uh, a very well in, ma- in many people's minds in our world, this would be a very uh, controversial text. But I don't know that this is controversial as it appears on the surface, and so that's what I hope for us to to look at and and behold and submit to and trust the Lord in this morning. Um, One quick note, because we kind of told Amanda, I told Amanda right before she came up about the the picnic, um, we just got storms kind of hanging out west of us, and we're just really unsure about going and setting up all these things out there and then having our thing this afternoon, so our picnic this afternoon. So that's why we're pushing it back two more weeks, and and we can't use here because we had the election commission using the fellowship hall for the next couple of Sundays, today and next, well, through next week. So we just need to make sure we uh, plan at a time where we can move it back in here, and we know we won't have to replan it again. So I just wanted you guys to know the reasoning behind that. But yeah, we're going to dive right back into this text this morning, and I am, I'm super excited about that. Now, Jordan um, did not lie last week when he said that uh, we, um, he, for some reason, he gets the, the, the luck of the draw when it comes to Bible texts when I'm out. I don't know what it is, but whenever I schedule people to preach, and especially when it's during the summer, and I'm usually taking, sometimes I'll take three, two or three Sundays, maybe four Sundays, just to kind of, and let the other guys do it so we can have some, a little bit of vacation time. Uh, he, he gets to, you know, short in the straw sometimes, some difficult texts, as he mentioned last week, and, and that is not on purpose. I don't know. Maybe the Lord's got something for Jordan in that. I don't, I don't know. Um, but uh, long story short is, but I am super excited about this text for a lot of different reasons as I jump back into preaching with you now, because so much of what Justin dealt with a few weeks ago, and then Delon followed up with the magistrates and how we relate to the magistrates and, the, and slaves and masters, and then now we get into marriage, all of that's lumped up into some really important uh, truths there that sometimes may not be exactly obvious to us. And then when we read texts like this, if we read them through the proper lens, we see what exactly Peter is trying to show his church and how he's trying to instruct his church in a better, in a better way. And I, and I think for me, I see so many things that, that we've been kind of touching on the last two or three weeks, or three or four weeks for that matter, 
that are so important to the world in which you and I are living in right now. A world that um, flattens distinctions in, in virtually every place, right? They flatten the distinction between men and women. They flatten the distinction between authority and submission. And they, they see these things as, as enemies to their autonomy, right? And, and, and we would say as people of the word that God creates good things and creates good structures and good spheres that have mitigated authority and submission. And yet, goodness in those things will are behold for God's people and for all people who submit to those good structures in the world, God will flourish through those things. And so um, I, I believe we're going to see some of that here this morning. Here's my main idea. You know, I love a main idea because I want us to know where we're going because this is really, really important. And this really might be a main idea for the last several verses. It is this, God graciously orders and rules over all the spheres of life. God graciously orders and rules over all the spheres of life. And we, Christians, the church, should wisely participate in them with honor, with respect, and with conviction. When we do this, we show the world something profoundly beautiful. The world is lost in all kinds of, washed of all kinds of different ideologies and different things. And, and we have the opportunity right now, church, to, to re-examine these spheres that God himself has given to us in, 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 and for our good and for our flourishing. And we get to you know, press into them in a way that the world doesn't understand. And yet the way we do it is a, is a testimony to the world. We'll see that here this morning in this text in various ways. Would you mind if I just did something as a precursor to this text that will help us kind of understand what is going on before we even get into the text? It, it might take me a few minutes, but I just trust that you'll bear with me because I think that there's a theme here that I want to unpack in, in Peter before we actually get to chapter 3. I think it'll be immensely helpful for us as we study that text together, okay? Um, so just bear with me for a moment. First is this, when you think about what we do here, we call it expo expositional preaching. And, and we, have, we do this by conviction. You know why? Because it prevents us from skipping texts like we're going to talk for the day. Uh, people don't like dealing with the hard stuff and they don't want to offend anybody. And therefore, they just jump around the Bible and make it whatever they want to make it. But exp expository preaching requires us to say, we take it as it is, we try to trust what God reveals to us, and then we try to understand it based on what God has given to us, right? And so expository preaching done well requires us to look at three, really three big things. And this is, by the way, if you want like know how to study your Bible 101, let me just pay attention for the next couple minutes. Expository preaching requires three lenses. Literary lens, meaning Peter gives us a, a text and it has a, a line of argumentation. It has a style of writing and those are important to us. And, and that's all by God's good providence and hand through Peter. Now, he gives us other texts in Scripture that are different styles of Scripture, and those are important to us as well. But right here, Peter is, gives us an, a line of argumentation. So we must look at the literary, or, or you might even say grammatical, context of the Scriptures. Very, very important. We must also look to the second lens of the historical context. Like, what is Peter speaking to? Like, like the church is experiencing something there in their, in their, in their region, right? Well, we talked about this many times. And so Peter is speaking and making arguments to address things that hit the church is really facing in their main context. We got to understand that. And then third, and the one that I sadly gets so put off and dismissed because we just want to deal with the grammatical and historical aspects of it. 
we need to understand the Christological or the theological framework, the lens. If we don't understand how it all fits together, if we don't see how God is taken from Genesis to Revelation and see how God has developed his wonderful covenantal plan of redemption and grace for his people, you and I will get lost in how to apply texts like husbands and wives to the world, right? It's really, really important that we understand that. So what happens, sadly, when we divorce ourselves from studying the Bible the way I just described is that we end up, many churches end up making, um, making one of two pro, pro, uh, issues out of it, okay? Uh, the most negative side of this would be they do modern academic gymnastics and therefore and, and dismiss very important instruction to us. Like, they'll just dismiss, oh, what's this whole subjection thing? Is that just antiquated ideas about women and, and wives? And, and, and so they'll do that side of it. The other side is um, we become bulls in a china shop, what my grandma used to call me, right? A bull in a china shop, right? And we go into a Bible and we just make a wreck of everything because we just kind of, we kind of isogeet the text and we kind of make that text just kind of be a bludgeon to beat people up with, right? You've, you've seen people do this. I grew up in a tradition that was like this in a church, Christian church, and it's not helpful and it's not faithful to the scriptures. What we end up doing is we end up overly principalize a certain verse just so that we can, we, can kind of, we can basically demand the world to believe a certain thing about us or about the world, right? Too many would-be expositors eisegete versus exegete. Okay, big word there, right? Eisegete is very simple. It is to lord over the text, to read into the text our own conclusions, it is to read other texts, our own historical context, our own political context, our own moment, our own concerns, our own challenges that we're facing. And eisegesis in every form when it comes to the Bible is bad study of the Bible. I have no problem saying that. Exegesis, though, is when you and I don't lord over the text, but we submit to the text. We receive from the text. All that God wants us to receive from that text so that we might benefit from it and teach it and trust it and learn to live it as, a, as, as part of a framework of our lives. And so what happens then when we eisegete the text, what do we do? I've kind of already mentioned it. We make the Bible a kind of a weapon. Now, let me say something here. The Bible is a sword of the Spirit. Okay? So I'm not denying that. It is a weapon in a, in a sense. But the weapon I'm talking about, how people will weaponize the Bible, is they'll, they'll kind of take the Bible again, and they'll kind of bludgeon people with it, and they forget that the Bible is God's revelation to us by which the Spirit comes in and does a work internally in us and calls us to repentance and draws us to faith in Christ and deepens our experience of who Jesus is. That's a very different thing. So, when we think about the Bible and our study of the Bible that way, here's what we find about 1 Peter, and let's just get right into it, okay? Literally speaking, Peter has this uh, section here, basically going back to um, what Delon dealt with, really, in terms of uh, applying some things in the Christian life from verse 13, actually verse 11 forward. Let me just kind of pick up with you. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, this is what Justin covered a little bit of, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you or slander you, some text will say, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then he goes from verse 13 up to where we are today, and he deals with applying that to the spheres of life of governments, uh, slaves and masters, and then, of course, uh, marriage. And so when we look at the literary context faithfully, and we see that what we see here is that Peter has a desire to show Christians 
how they can live as aliens and exiles in a land that's not their home, that is destroyed by sin and, and, and poisoned by sin. Good structures, good spheres that God has created are poisoned by these things and how we might engage in them in a meaningful and faithful way. And, and in some sense, show people how these things were intended to be lived out. And so that's what Peter's been dealing with here since basically verse 11 in chapter 2 up through the text we are going to study today. But it's not just enough to focus on Peter's argumentation. Peter is arguing this way, like I said a minute ago, because there is a specific historical context that his church or the church that he is writing to is facing. And we've dealt with this numerous times over the course of the last couple of months. Peter is writing to churches that were planned across what we would call modern-day Turkey, this region that was incredibly hostile to the gospel and had proven to be one of the hotbeds of religious hostility and division since then, throughout human history, since that time. And so Peter's instructions would come as a kind of balm to this struggling church in this moment who are seeking to be faithful to the gospel, but whom are unsure how to accommodate that into their everyday life, into the very spheres of life that God has said is good, but yet are compromised by sin. Yes? You see where we're going here. That magistrates are a good thing, but oftentimes magistrates are compromised by sin. Uh, marriage is a good thing, but sometimes marriage is compromised by sin. Uh, um, uh, 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 slaves and masters, or you might say this realm of vocation, is a good thing, but compromised by sin when you begin to create superiority and inferiority in this context, right? So Peter is speaking with love into this very, very thorny issue of these churches, and these Christians were literally facing daily resistance and slander from the pagan culture and the Greco-Roman society. And friends, we look at that and we go, wow, that sounds really familiar, right? And so you see how we can easily, when we do this properly, we can say, oh man, there's some context here. And this is actually some help to us in terms of understanding that we're not all that different than what happened some 2,000 years ago. But what Peter's not doing here is he's not just going to over-principalize what it means to be a husband or be a wife. He's not going to over-principalize what it means for us to be uh, good citizens in a, in a, in a, in a, a magistrate. He's not going to over-principalize any of these kinds of things. What he's doing is he's going to expand the gospel vision of their life and how it informs how they are to live in those spheres. So then what does that do then? It leads us into the theological context. See, Peter doesn't care about just giving you principles on how to live. The Bible's not worried about like over this and just kind of, you know, beating wives into submission, you know, from their husbands. And it's not interested in those kinds of things. He's trying to show you a vision of something beautiful. He's trying to show us a vision of, of what, what has been lost since the garden and how we as people, as we wait for Jesus, are living and trusting in the Lord in the midst of these thorny seasons of life. And you got to remember, and I said it wasn't just... Delon, who it is, we go back to what Justin did back in verse 9. That's the theological context. Look with me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are you, what are you supposed to do? You may proclaim his excellencies who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy... But now 
you have received mercy, and then go boom, launch right into verse 11 and 12, which is, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, even when they slander you, honorable. Well, that seems incredibly difficult, does it not? How we conduct ourselves has everything to do with how we give a gospel vision to the world. Amen? So, there you go. That's the introduction. And we can get out, I think, and faithfully understand the text that's before us. And we can begin to look at Peter's instructions to Christian wives, and we can begin to look at Peter's instruction to Christian husbands. So let's do that. Let's just read again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won, by, not by a word, but by the conduct of their wives. Verse 1. We'll just stop right there. Now, we got to tackle an elephant again in the room. Because if you've read this text, you see these seven verses, you probably notice something um, lopsided here. Yeah? Everyone notice it? Six verses are devoted to wives, and one verse is devoted to husbands. And someone just said, see, all you patriarchal guys out there in the church that's trying to hold women down, you're going to be, you know, you know and, and that's, you hear that kind of nonsense from the world. And I just want to speak to this very briefly, because... Though we do see a, a, maybe a, a, a grammatical imbalance here, that is not to give us any indication that somehow or another Peter's implying that women are inferior or that women are pr- more prone to need more instruction because they're not as smart as men. And trust me, you hear these kinds of things, and it's nonsense, but brothers, brothers and sisters, it's out there. And frankly, it's out there among some Christians. Um, or that even some of the instructions that, that they are they're given to wives are not equally in some ways applicable to men. Or their husbands, and we'll talk about some of that you'll see here as we get into this. Now, what Peter's simply signaling here is he's addressing the more common realities that believing wives and believing husbands were facing in these varying spheres of life, particularly there in marriage, um, and, and where the Christians had inhabited their lives, had grounded their lives, right? Um, we see this in Jeremiah 31 when God was talking, when God was speaking through Jeremiah to the people of Israel who were now in Babylon, and, 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 and all the prophets were saying, hey, don't, don't get settled here. You know, you, 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 you're ready, be ready to leave at any given time. And what does the prophet say? He says, don't you listen to your prophets or your diviners. They don't know what they're talking about. You go in, you build a home, you have children, you have jobs, and you live there until God has accomplished what he wants for you there. That's my paraphrase. No, what he's saying here is he's looking at these common realities that men and women, Christian wives and Christian husbands are facing, and he's seeking to, 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 to address some things that, that the churches seem to be kind of bringing some concerns to him, right? Um, you cannot, and I don't think Peter's even trying to attempt in seven verses to do an exhaustive diagnostic of husbands and wives. Now, there's some really gr- gr- rooted and grounded things, principles in here that we need to rest and rest in, right? And we'll deal with that. But that's not what Peter's aim is here. He's actually speaking to a church in, who's in living color, in a living situation, going... How do we deal with this, Peter? How do we live? How do these Christian wives live with unbelieving husbands? And how does, a, how does a husband rewire the way he treats his wife in light of the culture that seems to denigrate women so often? That's the real issues that Peter's dealing with. And the structure and sphere that God gives us, the goodness of this home life, and that we see rooted all the way back in creation, helps us understand how to do that. Okay, 
So I hope you see now why we don't want to make too much of something that's really not a big deal when it's all said and done. So we see here, very first thing, everyone pays attention to it, be subject, wives, to your own husbands. So what's the extent of this subjection? Some versions will say submission. Doesn't both similar range of meaning. Um, I mentioned earlier, and I've mentioned throughout this just three minutes, is that Peter is giving over the course of these last several verses a redemptive view of how Christians live in all these good spheres of life, right? We've we kind of been developing that idea here the last few minutes, um, and that we live in these spheres of life that God has designed and appointed us to. And our marriages and our homes are one of those integral spheres, just like our, the sphere of the magistrate in the civil realm, right? How we live out there in, the, in Smyrna, or, or, or United States, or state of Tennessee, or even beyond that. We have a responsibility to live righteously, faithfully, and trusting God that those spheres are there for our good, even if those spheres are not always ideal because of the impact of sin. But marriage is a creational institution. We, go, we can trace it all the way back to the garden. It's not an accommodation. It was there before the fall. God said it was not good for man to be alone, and he gives himself, gives Adam a helpmeet, as the Bible says. There's someone who comes alongside him to supplement him, to support him, to, 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 to take certain aspects of his life where he is not great at and be good at it so that he can accomplish what God has called him to do. There's no inferiority or superiority in that relationship. It's just a role responsibility in those relationships. And, of course, the Bible in various places unpacks that. Paul is one of the most common ones in Ephesians 5. And we need to take those things seriously, of course. So marriage is this creational institution, and it outlines the fundamental structure that God has in place in the world. And, and look, we can be assured of this, that when we have a good understanding of what it, the civil government's responsibility is over, and then we have a distinction of what the church is and how the church is honored in any particular society, and how the family is honored in any particular society, we can, assure you, we can be assured that throughout history, God has always blessed or not blessed societies that have done that well, or done not, or done it not so well. That's just a reality. That's not, that's not part of the work of redemption, per se. That's just part of how God says, since Noah, since the Noah covenant, I'm going to uphold everything. And if you do it, right, if you do it according to my structure, then you're going to bless. I'm going to bless those structures. And if you don't, well, then eventually those societies fade and fall away. And that's what we're dealing with here. So we got to make sure that we don't, when we're talking about marriage, we're talking about this institution where God creates roles and responsibilities between a husband and wife, but we don't draw some kind of broad distinction that somehow or another that's different. That's, that's kind of informing Genesis 128 when he, gives, he creates male, male and female in his image, and he gives them both the stewardship mandate to, to go into the world and be his stewards and his, and his ambassadors to the world and to fill the earth and to, and to, and to, and to do all the good things that humanity is supposed to do in God as, as image bearers. But within that call as image bearers, God then creates these structures where there's always going to be some level of authority and submission. It's just good. Why? Because we need it for good, thriving societies. So a, a society, a, a civil government, as Delon talked about, that has good magistrates in place will then serve the people well, and that, that people will thrive, right? 
Same thing when a husband and wife honor how they should lo- live a home and they honor one another and they mutually love one another. And, 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 and I would argue back to Ephesians 5, before we even get into Ephesians 5 on the whole husbands and wives text, he says he's calling Christians to mutual love for one another and mutual submission to one another. But those come with specific roles and responsibilities. I hope that makes sense. We don't have time to get into that aspect of it this morning because that's not the range of this text. But I just want to make sure I'm building out this idea of how do we reconcile this institution of the home where wives are called to submit to their husbands and husbands are called, like Paul says, to die for their wives, to wash them in the word, all the things that we see there. And it seems to be some of that's behind Peter's own words here. How do we deal with that in light of the fact that God creates us in his image as co-regents and co-heirs in Christ? And he even says so much down in the text later of how a, wife's supposed to treat, a husband's supposed to treat his wife as heirs. Co-heirs with Christ. Equal recipients of God's grace. Equal recipients of the image of God. Well, how do we do that? Well, God's design in these spheres, as I've already mentioned, the civic, the religious, the familial, all the different things that we have in our world, they bring good order to the world, and these spheres function with the, some kind of what we call economic authority and, stru- authority and submission within them, right? They're there. Why? Because they just make things work better. I'll give you a couple of quick examples that may be a little easier to kind of pull it out of the more technical realm and in everyday life. My best friend, one of my best friends, Joe Stegall, pastor at Providence. I, of course, you guys know before we launched Grace Church, I served on staff there as one of the associate pastors. And but we, we, we had a plurality of pastors who led the church. So we were all equal, led the church well together. There was three of us, well, four of us at the time when I left before we added in vocational elders um, after I left. Yet, when we broke from the proverbial Knights of the Round Table moment, you know, there was functional responsibilities given to each one of us to oversee, and one of those was Joe's being the lead pastor and being the functional kind of vision caster of the church. And so he had a functional responsibility that was different when he left the table, and I had to learn to respect that responsibility and submit to that responsibility. That makes sense? Now, does that make Joe more superior to me? No. Does it make me inferior to him? No, it doesn't. But I knew that in order for the good functional nature of the church to function well, we had to kind of divide and conquer. And one of those was to give him responsibility in that particular way. Like mine was over community groups and over youth ministry and preaching sometimes and all kinds of everything. I was kind of the jack of all trades there. Another more, maybe more even lower level example is I have a good friend of mine, another pastor friend, Tyler. And uh, Tyler is brilliant. I mean, if you know Tyler, you know how smart this guy is. Like philosophically smart, like a level of smart, you're like, I don't even know where you put that information in your head, right? And when I have a philosophical, especially Christian analytical, like theology question, do you know who I go to? Oh, I don't go to myself. Because I will be spending hours reading a book that I can just go to Tyler and be like, Tyler, give me some help here, brother. Now, in that relationship, me and Tyler enjoy being together and we enjoy and we mutually edify one another. Yet I am going to functionally submit to his expertise because he has went and done a lot of work, both academically, to to, to do this. And guess what? He's going to be a gift to me. Husbands should be gifts to their wives and wives should be gifts to their husbands. That's what the, that, at the end of the day, that's really what you sum it up to. 
A wife should be a gift to her husband, and a husband should be a gift to his wife, and we should learn to live in, in, in love and submission to one another in those, regard, in those relationships, but at the same time, understanding that there is a spiritual leadership given to a husband in some sense, even if the husband's abdicating that responsibility at times. So, there you go. That's, that's what we see how this helps us is that when we look at this text, what someone will do, some really bad uh, uh, theology will happen here is they'll look at this and they'll say, well, see, wives are to submit to their husbands. Therefore, all women are to be submissive to all men. You probably heard that line of thinking somewhere along the line. And I can tell you that you can, I, can, I, can, I can thoroughly debunk that idea. Okay. It just doesn't exist in good th- Christian theology. Like, <laughs> Help the man who comes to my wife and tells her, you need to submit to me. I'm just going to tell you right now, it won't go well for you. I promise you that. It won't, it won't go well for you. Um, and, 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 and listen, there are times in our life where there's just differences and there are different spheres. But when it comes to this, like that's not what a woman's responsibility is. So in general, being, being submissive to all men. There's really two places where men are given responsibility in Scripture, and that's in the home and in the church in terms of spiritual oversight and shepherding. That's the primary areas. And for whatever reasons God's providence is that, we can, we can spend the rest of our life trying to figure out all the reasons for that. But the reality is, is it's what God gives us, and we know it's good. And, when, and you know this yourself. When you have a church like that and you have homes like that, the proof is in the pudding, right? The proof is in the pudding. Now, what Peter has in mind here in this wife's submission to her husband, particularly unbelieving husbands, which we'll deal with here in just a minute, is a kind of resilient submission, not just to her husband, to, to God. God's providence over her life. That's what it seems to say in the affairs of her own life, how she might navigate the more sticky aspects of her marriage that may not always be where it needs to be or where it should be, but she remembers the larger theological identity of her life, which is in Christ. Because remember, Delon dealt with this a few weeks ago. The ground for, for, for us submitting to magistrates and functioning within that, the ground for uh, uh, slaves and masters or vocations, the ground for a wife now and a husband relationship is in the fact that we see right there in Peter, 1 Peter, he says, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did, not, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who justify, judges justly. We, we, we go to the, the man, Jesus, and he, in the midst of all of his pain and suffering, he submitted himself to his father who judges justly in the context of that. And we can, and, and I would say the argument, and I would say this, it's not just for wives to do that. You, if you think that pr- principle is only for wives, then you are sadly mistaken. Husbands, you are called to do the exact same thing. But in this particular context, Peter is, is, is dealing with something a little bit more uh, thorny, Right? If some don't obey the word, that they, they may be one. Like, how do you, why do you submit to them? Because if some don't obey, that they may be one. Maybe one to Christ. Peter seems to have this specific concern here for the wives of Christian wives who have come to know Christ, yet they're in a marriage with a husband who has yet to believe, to be convinced of the gospel. This is his idea. This idea of obeying the word is to, He's yet to be converted to the gospel. It's not just oh, disobey the word and its functional principles and its ideas and its moralities and 
which of course all comes with that, but most importantly, obeying the word. And what is the word? The word is God's revelation of his work of redemption and that that plan that he has unfolding and revealed and finally full, fully realized in Christ. See, they remain in Peter's mind these husbands unconvinced of that gospel, and now we have a bunch of wives who have come to know that Jesus is the true king of the universe and their savior of their souls, and yet they're in a marriage before their, that was right before their conversion, and their husbands are not yet convinced. And they're fearful. They're fearful. They're fearful what would happen because at the end of the day, it was commonplace, and it's been commonplace in every culture, but particularly in Greco-Roman culture, that a wife must take the gods of her husband as her gods. And now she's not. And what would that mean for her? What would that mean for her children if she remains in that marriage? She's scared, rightfully so. And how do you deal with her in that difficult moment? How what kind of gift to her? So that's what he has in mind here. So there's a bad, there is a bad interpretation of this text that kind of looks at, and again, it's eisegesis, as I mentioned earlier, where basically it says that women are to submit to their husbands um, in every action, regardless of their sinful intent ever. I, I've heard this. I've heard it even recapitulated today that somehow or another what this means is it doesn't matter how bad your husband is, uh, you need to stick into marriage. And there's some complicated things in that. And trust me, we, we understand that. And, and, and certainly, to whatever degree, we must preserve the marriage. But, but we also need to say, and I think, and I, and I say this, I think, because we've dealt with this as the elders at different times. Um, let's make it plain here. A husband, believer or not, has no right to neglect, abuse, or abandon his wife in any way. And if that is revealed, the church should get involved. And if it's revealed even further than that, that her welfare or her children's welfare is compromised in such a way that it's a danger for her because of her husband's leadership in her home or is potentially harming to her, well, then at that point, then we have to go beyond here and we go to where? Civil authorities, yes? Because that's, again, the proper realm for that. We don't criminalize, we, we don't deal with crimes, we deal with sins in the church. And so we deal with these things in their proper way. So a wife at grace, I want to make sure that you hear me. If, you're, if you've ever been or know someone or perhaps someone in the future comes in this church with this kind of story in their life, listen, be assured that if such actions are happening in your marriage or someone else's marriage, that the right thing would do to be bring them to the church or to the elders and so that we may evaluate what's going on in that situation and if necessary, bring the law enforcement if their lives are in danger. This text is not dealing with this kind of unequally kind of this this, this un um, what's the word I'm looking for this unilateral submission in all cases and to the point that the wife must remain in it at her own peril. Man, I, I don't I don't know really many pastors who believe that. The best of the best, I don't really believe that. But there are some out there who who, who say that, and I just want to make sure that we say up front that this is um, an issue that that we, we need to take great care of when, these, when those particular situations happen. You've, if you weren't able to come to our, our Southern Baptist informational meeting last Sunday, um, you know that sexual abuse is a big deal, or abuse in general for spouses is a big deal right now, and, in, in, and our own denomination has been embroiled with how we've handled cases like that, and there's a whole lot of different aspects of this that I don't have time to get into here this morning, but, but just know this. It should just remind us that 
regenerate church membership and, and good, done, done well church discipline matters. It, it might even save a woman's life. And when it's neglected, then we might be submitting people to a life of hurt and pain. Okay? So I hope, I hope I've been able to make that clear here. So clearly here, submission is not a call to endure abuse, neglect, or mistreatment. What is happening here, of course, like I said, is a woman is fearful because she's been abandoned, because they, they, have, um, they have abandoned their husband's gods. And you know how society works, right? When you abandon certain, certain beliefs in a society, then that can, might can cause you heartache in terms of your jobs and your income. And, and so therefore, she might be a liability to her husband or her husband might put her out because, hey, you're not following my gods anymore because now this is going to hurt me and might hurt my, my income and might hurt my lifestyle. And it's no different than it is today. It might look a little different. It might have different context, but it's, that's what it is. Again, she was expected to worship her husband's gods, and now she's not. So what is she going to do? So believing wives, though, here, according to Peter, should recognize that they can submit to an unbelieving husband when they are married before the conversion and trust that God's care for them. They can still love. They can still honor. And frankly, you can still have a good marriage, by and large, with with that person. I've known many women who've come to Christ and, and, and after they were married and they had husbands who were faithful, they provided well for their families, they were good fathers and whatever, but you know, they never came to know the, the Christ that they believed in and, and they can still have a wonderful relationship in that. And so we should not necessarily believe that just because you're a Christian, you should just, you're, you're, hey, well, I guess I should divorce this person because they're not a believer. In fact, Paul says, no, you, you stay with them. If it's a good marriage, and uh, unless they want to leave. Now, if they want to leave, they can leave. And you should just let them leave. So that's part of what we see here, right? They, they can trust the God that they say they love and worship now in Jesus in the midst of this unequally yoked relationship. Because the preeminent concern for the wife, as Peter sees it, is what? That they would come to know Jesus. That they may be one, it says there, right? They may be one so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. What does this mean to be without a word by the conduct of their wives? That they may See, one is that, is that without a word does not mean, wives, that you can't share the gospel with your husband. <laughs> okay, We're not saying that. It doesn't mean that you can't grow in your theology it doesn't mean that you can't read well, and doesn't mean that you can't, honestly, might sometimes be more spiritually mature than your husband. And so we can even open this up to not just believing husbands, but sometimes just immature husbands. I mean, I, I have, I've been a pastor for a long time, and I've seen many a struggling wife, many a frustrated wife, because they, they feel like they're outpacing their husband spiritually, or maybe the husband's not doing something uh, in his lifestyle, and, and you know, we have to lovingly care for them in that situation, and we have to teach them to be patient as, that, as God's working in their husband's lives, and, and, and sometimes it's not always easy to do that. But again, I've met many. I've met many wives whose husbands exasperate them. Can I get an amen? I, my wife can give me naming. I've exasperated her many times. I have. All right? They'll talk amongst themselves for a minute. All right? But it's the truth. I have done this. And I bet most of us have been guilty of this. 
But as we grow spiritually, we learn to repent and turn in faith and trust God in the order of He has called for us to be in the home. And so let me say, this is a real concern, and it's okay for us to say that these are, we'll find wives in these contexts sometimes, and they don't really know what to do. But let me say to us husbands for a second here, this is a really good word for us, especially those of us who believe, wherever, whatever range of spiritual maturity you're in right now, that husbands die for their wives, they give up their rights to themselves, and they make the first thing and first importance in their life to water their wives with the word. That's, that's Paul, plain and simple. And maybe you're married to a man who's struggling in that, and you can love him and care for him and respect him and trust the Lord will do the work in him and pray for him and ask other people to come along you and pray for him. And, and that may be very well, because we're all on an arc, right? We're all on an arc of where we are spiritually, and that's just going to happen from time to time. But husbands, if you are a believer here, I hope your our heart is open to this we must recognize that is our call to die to ourselves, die to ourselves, give our lives serving our families, even when it's tough and sometimes inconvenient or frustrating, and water our wives with the word. If your wife is frustrated, ask her why. You might have a really good conversation in it. It may look differently from home to home how we put these things in process, and maybe a husband has more rudimentary uh, spiritual maturity than, her wife, than his wife does, and that's going to happen from time to time. But wives, let me speak to you now on this. If you are more spiritually or theologically mature, one in your home or in your relationship, continue in that pursuit and trust the Lord. He is profoundly better to you than your husband will ever be anyway. Amen? And so when he falls short of that role and falls role of his role, that doesn't mean that you can't trust God in yours. No, you don't, you, you don't, you're not called to endure abuse and mistreatment and all those kinds of things, but I'm saying, but at the end of the day, you are called to, to trust that God will bring him along in his own time and you, pray, and you pray for him in that. A wife cannot force her husband into spiritual maturity that he doesn't have. That's a real hard lesson I had to learn as a pastor. I, I can't tell you how many times I wanted more spiritually for people that I have pastored than they wanted for themselves. And sometimes wives want more spiritually for their husbands than the husbands at that time want for themselves. But we can pray for it. And I can tell you when I stepped away from that and I'd pray for the people that I wanted more spiritual maturity in, God gave it. In some cases. Some cases he didn't. And he'll do the same thing, I think, for wives in relationships, spiritually unequal relationships with their husbands. How do you do this? You love him. You respect him. You grow your trust in him, even sometimes if that is hard to do. All the while hoping that your conduct will lead, if he's an unbeliever, to conversion. Or... To greater spiritual maturity. See, the reality here when Peter says that he may see your conduct is a really interesting play on words here. Because what is he, because you and I think about seeing, we think about the outward, right? But that's not what he focuses on here, is it? Next page is, next thing is, what is the conduct? Well, that he may see your conduct. What conduct does he want you to see? Well, it's not the external, he says clearly here, right? But the internal. So what Peter is saying here is seeing for a wife 
is the scene that she longs for her husband not to see her externally and her actions externally, her beauty externally, but the deeply internal hidden transformation that's taken place in her own life in Jesus. Peter is using this act of seeing as a call for a wife to help her husband see what is unseen in her life with Christ. So let not your adorning be external, he says here. That braiding of hair and putting on gold jewelry or, or fine clothing. It has been a condition for almost entirety of human history that women, and particularly in the Greco-Roman world where Peter's speaking into, that women had to get their value from their external beauty and their skill set. And so then it was, this, is, this was a way in which they would say, this is how I prove my worth to my husband, or how I prove my worth to someone who can, wants to be my husband, or whatever context that is, right? And we often see today, in a more crude fashion, women's value is reduced to three rooms, if you will. The kitchen, the laundry room, and the bedroom. And unfortunately, that kind of trash is also retorted in the Christian pulpits to way too often. That's not what your worth is. And husbands, this is not what your wife's worth is. Your, husband, your wife's worth, though it's important to have a well-ordered home, and it's, well, and it's important to have a great, a deep uh, a romantic relationship with your spouse, if at all possible. As my grandma used to say to me, it takes two to tango. No, he says, your worth is in the hidden person. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God, he says. The greatest value of a wife, a value a wife has in the home is not her skills or her physical beauty, but her spiritual resilience. To hold on to her God, even when they're, they're in conditions or situations, whether, that, whether it's their husband's control or not, but it's just the season of life that God has given to your family, she holds on to her God in the midst of those difficult seasons. He, he uses the word here, imperishable beauty. In other words, he says, look, at the end of the, end of the day, what he's saying there is the body gets old and your skills will dull. Imperishable beauty is a husband who's in his 70s who helps his wife who's faithfully served and loved her family for all those years who can barely walk to get her to the car and open the door for her and walk her in the house sometimes tuck her away in, her, in, 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 in bed at night. Because you know why? Her beauty wasn't in her skill set. Her beauty was in her sacrifice for her family, but more than that, in the fact that she did that because of who she was in Christ. Sarah's example then is important because Abraham, just do a study on Abraham. Find out what kind of man Abraham was. I hate when people make do uh, character studies of the Old Testament saints because they're not people to be emulated in most cases, even the best of the best. But Abraham, whew, he pawned his wife off to kings as his sisters, what, twice? So that he would save his own neck? He shacked up with Sarah's concubine because they, had lack, they, because, they, because they lacked faith that God would fulfill his promise to them. So they, he says, okay, honey, well, she, and, and, and Sarah's weak moment of weakness, she says, well, maybe this is what you should do. And he goes, well, okay, sure, honey, why not? 
in her moment of weak faith, Abraham disregarded her own trust in the Lord and he gave in to a worldly principle that would not serve her family. In fact, it created more chaos in the end. This is the woman that Sarah called Lord. I understand how hard it is to hear that. I, I, you know what? There are times I've thought to myself, how in the world does this woman deal with what she deals with on a weekly basis with me? Sarah did this, and she was an example, not because she endured uh, a mistreatment or abuse or anything in that regard, but she was a holy woman because she put her faith in God. Even as her husband stumbled greatly as he grew in his own faith. She called him Lord means that she, not that Abraham was acceptable as some kind of husband, but that, but her understanding and trust in God God's good providence in her life was more important. Friends, I sit down and I do marriage counseling. Well, me and a man have done this before. And I, me and a man have jokingly, I've said this before, we jokingly say when you sit down with us, we're going to do everything we can to show you that marriage is going to be the hardest thing you're ever going to get involved in. It's not about your ideal sex life. It's not about your ideal financial life. It's not about your ideal home life. It's not about any of those things. Yes, your romantic life matters, and yes, your, your a well-ordered home matters, and all the things there that God says is good, but what is more profoundly good is the imperishable beauty of a wife who grows and leans on her spiritual life and her new identity in Christ that will not fade in regards of whatever season or situation they find themselves in. That's the kind of marriage that will last. That's the kind of marriage that will point to the gospel. But then he goes in and says, likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way. He gives instructions to husbands now. What does it mean to live with your wife in an understanding way, to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel? These are thorny issues in and of themselves, and we'll try to do a little bit of work to this, and we can dive into it more offline. But look, your wife is your wife. Just like the woman's husband is your husband, you are her husband. She has a unique obligation to you. And likewise, husband, you have a unique obligation to your wife. She's not got a greater burden to stick it out with you than you have a greater burden to stick it out with her. You're both held to that same standard before God. She's your wife. Live with your wife in an understanding Way. A husband has a unique responsibility to his wife and not other women. And where, and, and listen, I saw this lived out in my own childhood. A, a father who abdicated his responsibilities over and over and over again. And when things got tough, he turned to other women. That's heart crushing. That's heart crushing. Now, you show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, here we go. Let's deal with that for a minute. Weaker vessel here, of course, does view, have in view the typical physical aspects of a woman compared to the typical aspects, physical aspects of a man. But it also can deal with the typical anxieties that a woman may have in certain areas versus the typical anxieties that a man may have in those areas. And again, we say typical because sometimes there's a lot of overlap here between husbands and wives. I mean, I have some of the fears over our everyday lives just as much as a man might have some of those fears. In fact, honestly, sometimes a man does better than I do. 
But let me just say this. There, like, when, we make a, when we say weaker vessel here, we're, we're, not, we're not talking about a woman who's inferior. But that she just, there are just certain makeups that are just different how God makes women and, women and men, and that those things will be bared out sometimes in relationship within a home. Let me just say this up front, like, there are women who are f- so physically strong that I would not dare get into a cage match with them. I'm scared sometimes to go in the same bedroom with this one. She's tough. She's strong. Like, she's just, I mean, you know, she always wants to say, she wants to do fight club, right? She, I'm, I'm like, just leave me alone. And she's like, no, we got fight club. And she, like, start punching me and just, you know, it's not abuse, I promise. But it's just, it's fun. Um, but, uh, you know, that's not what we're talking about, but it's, a, it's the kind of husband who understands that he doesn't treat the woman as inferior because that is the context that Christian husbands are living in in this context. Wives were property because they were weaker physically. They were, they, they, they were kind of under your banner. They were treated in such a way. That's not what a Christian husband does what peter has in mind is making sure that christian husbands understand that their duty to their wives is not like that of the other men in which they live and cohabitate in this larger region that they live in they are not to lord over their husbands they are not their wives i'm sorry and not to lord over or dominate them they're not to manipulate their wives they're not to just use their wives for their own needs and gains i've been a whiny husband at times but i'll tell you right now that is one of the things that i just can't handle when i get into a room with a whiny husband my wife doesn't do this, and my wife doesn't serve me here, and my wife doesn't do this. Well, sometimes this is a reality, and sometimes there's areas that need to be worked on there. I get it. But man, husbands. A husband is a servant leader who seeks to be patient and gentle and long-suffering and meeting the needs, meeting her needs where possible. He understands he's not going to treat his wife the same way that society around him treats women and treats their wives. And let's look around, guys, for all of the talk about, you know, about, you know, giving women rights and equality. Does it seem like at all that women are still treated well in terms of the way that they are treated in terms of uh, uh, their, their, their sexual identity and whatever else and their physical beauty? No, it does not. Don't buy a bunch of garbage about women, women's equality from the world. Buy it from the scriptures. Buy it from the scriptures here. A husband's a servant leader. Why? Because, and this is where I was mentioned earlier, because his wife, our wives, are heirs with us in Christ. It means we're, they're equal in dignity, they're equal in worth as image bearers in Christ. Christian men are never to treat women as derogatory, dismissive, and demeaning. And that pattern in our marriage is a way for us to live that out. Right? For those who think Christianity is one of those that simply promotes a kind of patriarchy that is repressive to women, I would just dare them to look again. And see that Christianity has been one of the primary means to, to, to defending women as equal representatives of the human race. Husbands, we live in an understanding way. To live in an understanding way is a life of service. This work is in tandem with the same imperishable beauty that the wife is to aspire for. In other words, you serve your wife... Oh my gosh, and I felt this so much. You serve your wife so that she can attain that imperishable beauty. Again, Ephesians 5, right? Why are your wife in the Word? 
This is what it means. It's not domineering. It's not lording. It's not do what I say kind of thing. It's a, it's a like, I love you in Jesus. See, our wives should not be men, nameless, faceless, voiceless codependents who have no identity other than being our wives. They are not called to live solely for our pleasure or for our service. Their identity is to Christ, and they should have a desire, and we should have a desire to see that watered in them over and over and over so that they may blossom into everything God has for them and wants for them in their lives. There are institutions and there are realms and in a home. That is how we do this. Husbands. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Why? If you don't, your prayers will be hindered. Now, here's the interesting part about this. When he calls the wife to submit, he doesn't put a kind of a command and curse, right? There's kind of a covenant language here, like, so there's this. But he does it with the husband, or your, your prayers will be hindered. Like, there's a, there's a more demand on the husband's response to, to water his wife into the spiritual word than it is for the wife in this moment. And I want us to take note of that. For husbands, if we neglect this duty of husband life to our wives, this gospel life, we will render our lives and our prayers to a spiritual dryness to, and, and, and restrict the spiritual vitality of our lives. Let's finish up. Christian husbands and wives will face all kinds of common challenges. That's what Peter's dealing with here as they seek to live out faithfulness to God in the sphere of marriage. And the world we live in is so constantly seeking to deconstruct marriage and deconstruct and flatten gender roles and distinctions and and flatten social structures. But friends, let me help us understand this, that these structures and these spheres and the marriage particularly is a good one if we want to see the world continue to prosper. I dare say that if we cannot recover the home, and I know, it's a tr- I know it's a trope sometimes people don't like to hear, but when the home is sure, um, generally, a society will follow suit. When the home is not, generally, it will not. So when Christians face challenges in light of their new identity in Christ, submission to God's judgment, and delight in His design, and order for life. We can face these challenges with joy and hope that God will hold us up until the end. We know God blesses this and upholds this in, uphold, uphold us in righteousness. When we live in these God-ordained spheres with respect, honor, and conviction towards those whom we share those spheres with, our gospel convictions will become visible to the world and shed light on the darkness of this world that is enslaved by sin and rebellion to God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us now as we take...